0: Well, we come to a new section of Matthew. You remember Matthew is written by Matthew, the apostle, to a Jewish Christian audience. And he's writing primarily about the kingdom. He's writing to prove that Jesus is king. He's writing to show what does it look like now while we wait for his kingdom. How do you live? How do you live and waiting for the king? And what is the nature of that kingdom? That's been a lot of what Matthew has talked about um, up to this point, and it, I mean, characterizes the rest of his narrative, the rest of his gospel. One of the key features of Matthew we keep bringing up is that there are five main discourses in Matthew, five main teaching sections where Jesus uh, walks us through, walks his disciples through different aspects. So you think about the first one, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about kingdom righteousness. If you are his, if you've repented and are placing your faith in Jesus, if you're a kingdom citizen, then what does your life look like? Matthew 5 through 7 addresses that. And then in Matthew 10, second discourse, uh, Jesus addresses the 12 apostles, and he sends them out on mission. He sends them out on mission first to Israel, but even in that discourse, he, he's looking beyond their mission to the mission of his disciples in the world more broadly. And then by the time we get to the third discourse in Matthew 13, the kingdom parables, that is set in the context of Israel, uh, uh, certainly Israel's leaders, but by and large, the nation as a whole rejecting its Messiah. They've seen enough miracles. They've seen enough uh, demonstration that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet they've rejected him. They've rejected the offer of repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. They've rejected that. And so Jesus, in Matthew 13, gives parables to describe what's the coming of the kingdom going to look like now. And today, we enter Matthew 18, which is the fourth of five discourses in Matthew, and uh, it comes on the heels of the temple tax, what we talked about last week, from Matthew 17, 24 through 27. And what we said about that section is that that section, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he is telling them that you are under no obligation uh, to the temple tax. And we said that that is set in the context of Matthew where Jesus is shifting where the temple is located. Uh, It is located in Jerusalem when, uh, when he walks the earth, but as the ultimate Davidic king, as the Messiah, he is going to build, Matthew 16, he says, I will build my and we expect to hear the word temple because that's what the davidic king does but he says i'm going to build my assembly my church because in this age in the new covenant age the temple is god's people it's his temple assembly it is his new covenant people it is his disciples that he is gathering around them and they are centered on christ Christ as the ultimate Davidic king, the ruler over the world, the one who dies in place of his people and rescues them. And so really last week, it had a lot to do with uh, where, where is the loyalty? Where is this community of disciples? What are they centered around? It's no longer the temple in Jerusalem. It is centered around Jesus. And that begs the question, how does this community of disciples, how does the church, how does it relate to one another? How ought they to interact with one another? And in large measure, that is what Matthew 18, as the fourth discourse, deals with. It deals with, now that we have this community, now that the the community of Jesus' disciples is going to be the temple that the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king, is building in this age. It's built up of confessors like Peter, who confess Jesus to be the Christ and understand his atoning work on his people's behalf. Now that that's happening, now that he's gathering this people, how is this people supposed to live in relation to one another? Matthew 18 is basically structured around two big questions by the disciples. The first, as we will see today, is the question Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, The disciples ask that question, and Jesus gives an answer. And then in verse 21 of chapter 18, we've got Peter asking a question about forgiveness, and then Jesus answers that question with a parable. And that, by and large, is how the chapter is structured. Now, that's a little overly simplistic, because as you will see when we walk through this chapter, everything is tightly interconnected. It's largely one long argument from beginning to end of how Jesus' disciples are to interact with one another with different focuses at different times. And so this morning, as we enter the text, there's the, uh, the main idea for verses 1 through 9, which is the first section we will look at. We won't get through the first half today, but we'll get a good start. As we look at Matthew 18, 1 through 9, the main idea is this. You must have three dispositions in the community of Jesus' disciples, in the church— in order to avoid wrath and enter the kingdom of heaven. All of what we're going to see today in verses 1 through 9 uh, ultimately focuses on the end. It focuses on the kingdom. It focuses on God's judgment. And that really has been a focus throughout Matthew. But each of the three things that we're going to see, each of the three dispositions, looks and lives in light of the end. So, we're going to look at first in verses 1 through 4, the first disposition, and it is this. Lower yourself to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Lower yourself to be the greatest in the kingdom. And we'll look at verse 1. At that time. Now, um, that little phrase right there ties us back to what came previously. It actually ties it back even uh, more strongly than that uh, phrase would imply. Uh, Literally, it reads, in that hour, in that hour. So we're talking about that the start of this discourse is really strongly connected with what just happened. Well, what just happened? The temple tax and that whole discussion where Jesus says, you are sons, you are part of the royal family. Uh, You are free from obligation, from tax to the, uh, the temple. Go ahead and pay it so as not to give offense, but you are free. You are sons of the king. You don't need to pay. And there's even more that's been happening lately that might give rise to the question that the disciples are going to ask. Uh, you can remember back to the transfiguration, and who does Jesus amongst the disciples, who does he take up with him? He takes Peter, James, and John. Uh, he, we saw in the last section, um, he's talking to Peter about the temple tax, and we've seen Peter's prominence throughout all of this. So the start of this whole narrative, the start of this whole discourse, is strongly connected to the things that have come previously. So in that hour, the disciples, the whole group, approaches Jesus, and they ask him a question. Here's their question. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? Your translation, the ESV doesn't have the little word then. I don't know if your translation does or not, but in the original, there's a little word then. Who then? Um, is greatest in the kingdom of heavens? And that ties us back even more to what came previously. Essentially, what the disciples ask, are asking is, based on what you just said, that we're part of all the royal family, uh, in what you just said about the temple tax and what you just talked to Peter about, well, okay we're already talking about some greatness sort of ideas and language, but we've also seen how there's some distinguishing, maybe between Peter, James and John, between Peter. who then is the greatest in the kingdom? of the heavens. Now, remember, the kingdom of the heavens, what does that refer to? It is that the focus in Matthew is on the kingdom that is coming from the heavens with the Son of Man who's going to come and reign as the ultimate Davidic king over the whole world. Well, that hasn't happened yet in Matthew. In fact, it's been rejected. It's going to be postponed, essentially, So, but the the disciples, they're still learning that, they're still sorting things out, and they are still looking forward to that kingdom and the glories of that kingdom. And they want to know okay, once we get there, who then is the greatest? Who's the greatest? Now, let's think about their question for a minute. For them to ask who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the heavens, they have to be excluding Jesus, right? Because. Uh, if they, um, uh, I mean, just on the surface, they understand Jesus to be the Messiah and they've confessed him to be the Messiah. He is that ultimate king. It doesn't make any sense for them to ask who's the greatest because Jesus is the greatest. So they must just be talking about them as disciples amongst themselves. And so what does that imply? Two things. One, they're comparing each other. They're comparing each other. They're comparing, all right, Peter's here, James is here, John is here, you know, Matthew's here. They're comparing amongst one another. So the measure of their greatness is in a comparison with each other. Um, Yes, there's an implication that, we want to know who's the greatest from God's point of view, but there's a comparison game going on. Second, we see this, there's a concern for self focus and self-honor. They want to be the greatest. Who's the greatest? I want to be the greatest. That's where they're focused. So there's a comparison and there's a focus on self and self-honor. So already, given their question and given what we've seen in Matthew, we understand this is a, this is not a good question to ask. The motivations of this question are wrong. So how is Jesus going to address it? verse 2, and calling to himself a child, he stood him, or stood it, doesn't say whether it's a male or female, the word here doesn't specify, He stood the child in the midst of them. He stood them, this child, in the midst of the disciples. So, doesn't say where they're at, could be in a house in Capernaum, could even be Peter's house, we don't know, uh, could be some other venue But regardless, there's a child nearby. Now, how old is the child? This word for child is uh, normally used for a child somewhere between infancy and seven years old. Obviously, the child can understand, it can move on its own, and it can stand on its own. So you get the idea of, you know, something like a four, five, six, or seven-year-old child who's being stood in their midst. Jesus is setting up for himself an object lesson. Now, before we go farther, we need to understand how children are viewed in that culture and time, because it's way different than the way we view co- uh, children in our time. There are similarities, but there are profound differences as well. So, what culture are we dealing with? We are dealing with Palestine in the first century. We are dealing with the Jewish world and Jewish culture. We know from the Old Testament that children are valued. They are a blessing from the Lord. But despite that reality, that they are viewed as a blessing, they are, they are valued, they were those, children were those with the lowest social standing in the community. They have the exact, absolute lowest standing in that community, in that time. We also know from the Old Testament places like Proverbs, that children are viewed as in need of instruction and discipline in order to be walking in God's way to follow God, to not be foolish. There's folly bound up in the heart of a child. There's also the idea that the identity of a child was rooted in their connection with their family. Their fundamental orientation as a child, uh, where their worth and value and identity came from, was their connection with their family. They're absolutely vulnerable and dependent on their parents and were to honor them, honor your father and mother. That is how they are viewed. Uh, Speaking of vulnerability and dependency, there is estimates that in the Greco-Roman world at large at this time, 50% of kids that were born didn't even make it past age 10. So you think of that in terms of just sheer vulnerability and dependency and coupling that with your family being your identity. Kids are the lowest on the totem pole. As far as social standing, they are absolutely dependent and vulnerable, and they are too honor their parents. Their orientation, their identity is rooted in their family. So you need to understand that, to understand what Jesus is doing with this object lesson with the child. So he brings this child, stands him in the midst, and what happens, verse 3, and he said, truly I say to you, which is Jesus' way of saying, listen up, I'm going to tell you guys something that's really important. If you do not turn and become as the children, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that is a very, very shocking statement, because who is he talking to? He's not talking to the crowds. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to those who have, at least uh, from what has been seen, they have repented they have turned their allegiance from sin and self they have entrusted themselves to jesus they've confessed him to be the christ and yet he responds in this way if you don't turn which is in the realm of the language of repentance of change uh they've, they've repented in a broad sense they've changed their allegiance they're following jesus and yet he's focusing on a specific change that needs to happen in them." If you don't change and become as children, you're certainly not. It's emphatic in the original. You will certainly not enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Now, remember what I just said earlier. What's what's the idea of the kingdom of the heavens? It's still future for them. It hasn't come yet. It's when the Messiah is going to reign as the agent of God on the earth and over the whole earth. So that hasn't come yet yet. That's the orientation of Matthew. If you think back to Matthew 7, remember the two paths, uh, the two gates uh, enter by what? The narrow gate. For Narrow is the way that leads into life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. The, 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 the idea in Matthew is uh, you're walking as a disciple on a path, hopefully the narrow path, and then hopefully at the end, you persevere in that so that you enter by the narrow door into the kingdom of heaven. And so that's the sort of mentality that Jesus is issuing here. Yes, they are disciples. Yes, they've repented and have faith. Yet, But if they, dis- they don't change their attitude and how they're thinking, the way they're thinking that was expressed in their question, it's going to mean you're not going to enter. You need to turn and become as the children. Now, what does that mean? And Jesus is going to explain a little bit more fully as we go along, but what he is not talking about is a specific character attribute of children. Something like, um, you know, it's, it's not like their humility or their innocence or anything like that. That's not what Jesus is focusing on. He's focusing on their social standing because that's the kind of question they asked in verse one. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he takes one who's on the lowest totem, uh, the lowest standing on the totem pole of society, the most vulnerable, the most helpless, the most dependent. He says, you gotta become like these folks. You gotta become like children. If you don't, if you don't, then you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's think about why. Uh, We can go back and trace some of the thinking why Jesus would say this. Remember back to Matthew 11. Back to Matthew 11, verse 25. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. But remember what Jesus says. He prays to his Father in heaven after talking with the crowds, and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Uh, God didn't reveal, doesn't reveal knowledge of the Son to those who think they're wise and intelligent and have it all together. He reveals them to dependent little, little ones. Not only that, the disciples needed to find their identity. So the disciples needed to recognize their need for instruction and discipline. In that whole context, in Matthew 11, Jesus is, the Father reveals the Son, and then what does the Son say? Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So just like normal children, the disciples need instruction and discipline. Any disciple that comes to Christ needs instruction and discipline. Just like children in that era as well, Their identity needed to be rooted in their family. At the end of chapter 12, um, there's someone that comes to Jesus and says, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus says, who is my mother and my brothers? And he says to his disciples, here are my mother and brothers. In other words, their identity needed to be rooted in their family, with Jesus at the center and the Father at the center. Above all, as Matthew has been talking and laying uh, Jesus' teaching out The disciples needed to understand that they were vulnerable and dependent upon their heavenly father and were designed to honor him. That language of not only is um, the father Jesus' father, but as disciples, the father is the disciple's father. And being in the family means you are totally dependent upon that heavenly father and you are designed to honor him but what are the disciples looking for with their question in verse 1? They're looking towards their own honor and their own standing. And so what is Jesus doing? He is violently disarming them of their mentality, saying you don't become dependent. You don't become utterly dependent on your heavenly father. You don't find your identity in this family, not in your your standing, but in seeking the honor of the father, you're not going to enter. You see, God doesn't share glory with anyone. God and God alone is the only being who has always been and always will be. Before anything else was, before anything that was created was, there was God and no one else. And he creates and everything is about him. Romans 11 says, from you and through you and to you are all things. Everything is about God. He is the only one to whom honor and glory is rightly do. And so to have this question of, yeah, I'm going to be in the kingdom, and uh, where's my standing going to be? Where's my rank? Remember what that presupposed. It presupposed that you're comparing with another person in rank, and you're also seeking yourself honor. God does not share honor. He does not share glory. And so... What do the disciples need to be? They need to be as children. They need to become as children, utterly dependent on their father, utterly oriented towards their father and honoring him, not seeking self-honor and self-glory. And that's why Jesus goes on to, if you don't have that mindset, if you don't humble yourself and are not dependent, if you think you're wise and intelligent, if you think you have something to offer God, if you're seeking your own honor and your own glory in life, you're not getting in. Not happening because God displays his own honor and glory through the weakness and dependency of those who come to him through repentance and faith. That's the only way someone enters the kingdom of heaven. And notice the logic here. This is fascinating. Look at what Jesus then does in verse 4. So, unless you turn disciples and become as children, you're not going to even enter. You're certainly not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven you're showing that you're not actually children. But then, what does verse 4 say? Therefore, and there is a therefore there in the original, therefore, whoever lowers himself, so that's the issue, are you going to lower yourself? Are you going to admit, I have the lowest standing No one comes to the father except acknowledging, I have the lowest standing. I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm utterly dependent on the father. I'm utterly dependent on the son. Whoever lowers himself as this child, and he's pointing to this kid that he's got standing in the middle of them, whoever does lower themselves as this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. So he answers their question. Remember, the question is, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? And Jesus first says, well, unless you become like children, you're not going to even enter. So that's a prerequisite. You've got to lower yourself like children. You've got to show um, your dependency, your lowliness in relation to the Father and your de- utter dependency on him and seeking his honor. But then notice what happens. He says, therefore, based on that mentality, if you do that, if you lower yourself as this child, you're the greatest. So what does that mean? To enter, you have to be like a child, you have to lower yourself like a child, and if you do, you're the greatest. Implication? Everyone is the greatest who is in the kingdom of the heavens. Meaning what? What is Jesus doing? He's disarming the comparison game. He's disarming the comparison game, and he says, it's not about comparing One with another, it's about understanding your relation to God as your Father and your dependency and your orientation towards Him. And when you understand that and when you're in, you're the greatest. And everyone's the greatest. You're all children in relation to the Father. And your standing in the kingdom is in relation not to one another, but to the Father who is in heaven. No more comparison game, because you're rightly viewing yourself in relation to the Father. How do we apply this? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? If you must lower yourself like a child to enter the kingdom of heavens. It's not about your smarts. It's not about working out all the details of Well, um, I'm reasoning through. Well, I reasoned my way to God. I found God. I've worked out all the conundrums and all the implications and all of this. No, how you enter is crying out to God like a child God, I need you. I am utterly dependent. I am a sinner. I don't deserve to come near you. I've sought my own glory. I've sought my own way. We all do that. We all seek our own way. We all seek our own exaltation, our own promotion. We all seek our own reign apart from God, and if you're going to enter, you need to become like a child and stay like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven, to recognize your utter dependence on the Father in heaven, to reveal the Son to you so that you repent, place your faith in the Son, and follow the Son, independence and lowliness, recognizing I have nothing, everything I have is from God. You don't have that attitude, you're not getting in. And a a stubborn, sinful heart will harden itself because it wants to think highly of itself. Our flesh wants to think highly of ourselves. That is our bent, that is our nature. And it is only by God's grace that you can bend the knee in repentance and faith and dependence, understanding you are the lowest of the low for God to bestow his gift that you might enter into the kingdom. You must see your absolute dependence on the Father and seek His honor, not your own. Becoming a Christian is the death of your own honor. It's the death, as Jesus said, of your own life and your own will. It is seeking your identity in the family of faith with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at the center. And by implication, we ought not to play the comparison game as Christians. Don't we do that? We look at one another and say, well, that person's walking well. Uh, I wish I was, as, I was doing as good as that person was. Or I wish I was more holy like that person was. I wish I was more mature. Now, there is, there is maturity and immaturity. We're all on a journey of growing in the Christian faith. And yet, we rank ourselves with one another. And we rank our standing before God. It's doing the exact same thing as the disciples were doing. And we cannot play that comparison game. Our identity and value are found in dependence on the Father and in our relation to Him. So first, you must lower yourself to be the greatest in the kingdom. Second, you must receive and not ensnare believers to avoid woe. You must receive and not ensnare believers to avoid woe. Look at verse 5. And, now I think it's tough to discern here, does verse 5 go with verse 4, or does it come later? I think it goes with later, so I think 5 through 9 kind of go together, and really 5 through 7. Because what Jesus does here, you will notice a switch in what he says. Verse 5, And whoever receives one of uh, one child such as this, upon the basis of my name, receives me. Now, what was he just focusing on in verses two through four he was focused on one's own understanding of their status um, and them needing to become like a child so you think about it in terms of an individual disciple in verses two through four he's concerned about the individual disciple thinking of themselves rightly as lowly, like a child in relation to the father. But what he starts to do in verses 5 through 7 is the situation is different. The situation is different. He's still thinking about a disciple as a child. So all the child language that you're going to get in this section, it's all about disciples in general. He's not specifically talking about literal children. He's talking about the uh, d- uh, d- children as a metaphor for disciples. But what he does in verses 5 through 7, what he does in verses 5 through 7 is he focuses on uh, someone else's relationship to a disciple, to a child. So in verses 2 through 4, it's about the disciple in and in their relationship with the greatness in the kingdom of heaven. But now, in verses 5 and following, it's like someone else thinking and interacting with the disciple, okay? So there's a shift in the picture and in the imagery. So now the question is not, are you going to become a child like, uh, as you ought, but how are you going to relate to one of these chi- children? And that's what he talks about in verses 5 through 7, whoever receives One such child upon the basis of my name. What does that mean? Well, the language here is actually reminiscent of some other language that we've seen in Matthew. You can turn back to Matthew 10, the second discourse in the book of Matthew, and we saw this language there. So I'll remind you of it. Uh, It's actually at the end of that discourse, so Matthew 10, 40 through 42, and... Jesus says this again to his disciples, and is specifically to the twelve that he's sending out to minister to Israel at this point. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That language, therefore, receives is the same word that's being used in our passage in Matthew 18. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones... So there we've got similar language to what we're seeing in Matthew 18 as well. Uh, and he's, again, talking about disciples. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And we, when we worked through that section, we said this language of reception, it's the idea of receiving Jesus' messengers. And uh, in the context of chapter 10... So it's not only receiving the message, it's also showing practical care and hospitality to the disciples as they are on mission. So this idea of reception, it is reception of the message, it is aligning oneself with the kingdom and with the kingdom messengers and with Jesus, but it also has this overtone of practical care and concern, a full-on welcome of a disciple And that's the same thing that Jesus is talking about here. He shifts from the disciple thinking of themselves as a child to now uh, talking at least about someone else and their relationship with a disciple as a child. And what does he say? Same logic as happened in chapter 10. Whoever receives one such child, a full-orbed welcome, On what basis? On the basis of my name. Meaning what? The person is receiving this disciple child person. It's a disciple in general, but he's using the metaphor of child. Why are they receiving them? On the basis of Jesus' name. In other words, the disciple bears Jesus' name, and that becomes the basis of this welcome of them. And what does Jesus say? Whoever does such receives me. The idea is Jesus is tying, he values his disciples, whom he characterizes as children here, so much that you welcome a child or a disciple, like a child, um, on the basis of his name, then you're really welcoming Jesus. In other words, it's another way to elevate um, and show how much Jesus values his disciples and cares about how people receive them. And then what's interesting is that he gives the exact opposite of a welcome and talks about the exact opposite of a welcome in verse 6. Polar opposite. But, but, verse 6, whoever ensnares one of these little ones who believe in me. See there, he's still using the, 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 uh, the child as a metaphor. It's, he's really talking about disciples, those who believe in me, those who've entrusted themselves to me. But now we're talking about the exact polar opposite of welcome. Uh, your translation may have something like cause to sin or to stumble. This is a word that Matthew has used several times already, and it's this word that um, goes back to the idea of a trap, of a snare. Uh, So you could translate this, and I think this might be a good way of translating it here. Whoever ensnares, so we got someone else relating to a disciple, whoever ensnares one of these little ones who believe in me, what's that? What does that mean? In the context, as you see, as it's going to unfold this idea of ensnaring is the idea that you set a trap intentionally, and a disciple uh, 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 they may or may not be ensnared in this trap, but in this case, it's envisioned that they will. And the idea of being ensnared is the idea of being ensnared into sin, serious sin, because as you will see in verses six, seven, eight, and nine, the same word is going to be used, and the idea is this is this is uh, this is severe um, uh, sin that damages uh, or potentially could damage uh, one's relationship with God. So this is severe sin that's being talked about here. But the idea is someone setting a trap. uh, How does that happen? We'll talk about that. But setting a trap, ensnaring another disciple, and Jesus says this, it would be better for someone who does that, who ensnares a disciple who believes in me, it would be better if they had um, that a, literally a millstone of a donkey. Your translation probably says something like a large stone or a heavy stone or something like that. You had a couple different types of millstone at that time. You had kind of a hand millstone to grind grain, and then you had a millstone where a donkey had to drive it in order to grind grain. So we're talking a donkey-powered millstone. That's pretty darn big. And he's saying, it would be better if such a millstone was hung around this person who ensnares a disciple's neck and that they would be drowned into the depths of the sea. The idea is you row out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee or you row out to the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to the deepest possible part. You hang this giant millstone around someone's neck. It's, it would be comical if it wasn't so serious. And then you drop them into the ocean. It would be better... For to do that, it would be better for that person who would ensnare a disciple. Better than what? Jesus doesn't say, does he? He doesn't say better than what. He just says it would be better if that would happen. But given the context, what he's talking about uh, uh, is the context of judgment. If you ensnare a disciple who believes in Jesus into sin, it's way better if you got a giant millstone... Maybe we would think in terms today of like an anvil or something like that. And it got hung around your neck, and you got dropped into the bottom of the ocean, and you drowned. Now, I have never been close to drowning, but I know it is a painful and scary prospect. And that is better than facing God's judgment for ensnaring such a disciple. See, what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting, both in verse 5 and in verse 6, the value of a disciple. God values his disciples so much, these children who believe in him, that you welcome them, you welcome Jesus. But if you ensnare them into sin, watch out, because Jesus and the Father value them. And it's the same logic as he goes on into verse 7. Woe to the world because of snares. Now, this is the same word, just the, na- well, it's not the same word, but it's the noun form of the verb that he just used in verse 6 to talk about stumbling and snaring. Now he's using the noun form, so he's still talking about the same thing. Woe to the world because of snares, because it is necessary for snares to come. And what Jesus is saying is, you think of the world and the fallen worldly state and its values, it's natural and it's just necessary that snares are going to come. The world and its system is going to, there are going to be things in life as a disciple walks that would just be easy to be ensnared with. Because of the world value, because of its fallenness and its world system, they're going to naturally come. But notice what he says, nevertheless, woe to the person through whom the snare comes. And he's emphasizing the same thing that, yeah, there's going to be snares in the world and a disciple is going to have to uh, 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 avoid those. But the person through whom they come, the person who potentially entangles and ensnares a disciple into sin, woe to that person. It's the language of judgment. It's the language of judgment. Now, what is Jesus doing with this because he's still talking to his disciples. Why is he talking about this? Why is he why is he talking about someone causing a disciple to sin when he's talking to the disciples? Well, there's two things taken together as we've seen 18:5 through 7 not only reinforce the valuation of the disciples, the children, the little ones, but it also seems to function as a warning to professing disciples, not to be the cause of snares for sin to other disciples of Jesus, but instead to welcome fellow disciples. So the issue is this. Jesus is talking to professing disciples, and it's still a warning. What ought He's talked about, okay, as a disciple, you need, in 18.2 through 4, you as a disciple need to have a lowly attitude, a childlike attitude. Now, think about your relationship to other disciples. You must welcome them, because in so welcoming them, you're welcoming Jesus. But if you ensnare them into sin, you are fooling with one of God's children, and you had better watch out for God's judgment. Essentially, what Jesus is doing as talking to professing disciples is he's saying, "Um, if you find yourself ensnaring other disciples into sin, you're showing you're not actually a genuine disciple. That's the long and short of it. And think back to the disciples' original question. What did it presuppose? Comparison with one another— and seeking their own self honor. Well, Jesus has dealt with one of those in 18:2 through 4. He dealt with, okay, here's how you think about yourself. Here's how you think about your own honor. You're the lowliest in relation and to the Father, you're absolutely dependent on him. Now he's dealing with another aspect of the question in 18:5 through 7. Here's how you think about other disciples. You don't climb over the top of them to reach the top of a ladder in being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you welcome them. You welcome them in that full-orbed sense. You help them along the way. That's the idea. So, how do we apply this? First, recognize the value that Jesus places on his disciples. Jesus, you welcome a disciple because they're a disciple, because they bear Jesus' name. You're welcoming Jesus. You ensnare a disciple, It's better for you if you had a heavy millstone hung around your neck and dropped into the deepest part of the sea. Why does Jesus say that? Because Jesus and the Father and the Spirit value disciples. So what do we do? We work to welcome and receive disciples as disciples for the sake of Jesus. This should govern our interactions within the local church. We ought to welcome one another, receive one another, care for one another, and you guys do this. It is one of the things that is a hallmark of this church, by God's grace and by God's work in your lives, that you welcome one another, you love one another, people see this when they come into our church, and the call is to excel still more to receive one another because you're a disciple, because you bear Jesus' name, to help one another along the road into the kingdom of heaven, to persevere, to continue in repentance and faith in Jesus. You do well. Excel still more. On the flip side, be mindful. Be mindful and watchful that you do not ensnare a disciple of Jesus. Now, you're like, how could I do that? How would I, end, how would I do that and snare another disciple into sin? Now, I will say there are many ways that that could happen, but in the context of what Matthew is doing in Matthew 18, there's this context of absorbing worldly values. Really, the question that the disciples ask in 18.1 is a worldly value. How can I be the greatest? how can I be the greatest? It's a worldly value system. That's what Peter, remember what happened with Peter? Uh, Jesus says, I I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. And Peter does what? He takes him aside, Jesus aside, and rebukes him, says, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Uh, Get behind me statement. You are a snare to me. Now, Jesus didn't trip over that snare. He identified it. He didn't fall. But what, why was that? It was because Peter was thinking the things of man and not the things of God. And that's the same valuation system that you see in eighteen one. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so I think in context we could say this, that absorbing worldly values and concerns and then encouraging by word or by example Disciples in that direction, and this happens unconsciously when we absorb the value systems of the world. And you could go down a list, right? Uh, Thinking, trying to promote self, trying to be great. Well, that's just that's what the world does. If that's your focus, you're going to ensnare other disciples because you're going to encourage them to adopt that same value system, and they're going to fall into sin. Let alone yourself. Greed, material possessions, laziness, ease, independence. We could go down the list, but you, ad- you adopt the, the, the value systems of the world, you're going to ensnare others. And here the concern is not just about yourself but about others. That's how the community of Jesus' disciples works. It's not just about you. We praise God that uh, Jesus saved individuals, that he saved and he loved me, but he saved other individuals as well. He saved other disciples, and he's brought us together in such a way that we must be concerned not only about our lowly standing and dependence before our Heavenly Father, but that same concern must extend to others, to welcome them and to not ensnare them. So we've seen, first, lower yourself to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Second, receive and do not ensnare believers to avoid woe. And third, maim your flesh to enter into life. Maim your flesh to enter into life. Verses 8 through 9. Now, this is going to be familiar territory. Um, Let's go ahead and read it. Now, if your hand or your foot, and here we get the same verb, ensnares you. If your hand or your foot ensnares you, cut it off and throw it away. Throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life maimed or lame rather than having two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And, verse 9, if your eye ensnares you, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you, one eye, to enter into life than having two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire or the fiery hell. Now, we've seen this sort of language by Jesus before. We saw it way back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 29 through 30. He talks about this very same thing. It's a little bit different here. There, he was talking in the context of sexual temptation. Here, it's more broad. There, he, um, uh, he used similar imagery, but now it's more explicit of the, 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 the alternatives are eternal life and eternal death. When he talks about entering into life here, it's not just the sense of physically living. He's using that as a stand-in for entering into the kingdom, which is what he talked about earlier in this section. You're either entering the kingdom, entering into life, true and full life, or you're entering into eternal, the eternal fires of God's judgment. This is some of the most explicit language of Jesus talking about hell. Jesus believes that hell is real. And he believes that how you live your life has implications for which direction you're going to end up with. Now, how does Jesus frame all of this in 8 and 9? If your hand, your foot, or your eye ensnares you. And the verb here indicates it's not just that you're ensnared once. It's like a constant pattern of being ensnared. So Jesus is indicating and looking at an individual disciple, and he's saying, if you are snared in a a continual pattern sort of way, notice how he has shifted again. Because what was he just talking about in the previous section? He was talking about you ensnaring others, or at least someone ensnaring a disciple. Now he's focused back on the individual disciple and their responsibility to deal with being ensnared. And the language he's using here, it's the idea that you're, some part of your body, whether your eye or your hand or your foot, the things that you act with, the things that you see with, is ensnaring you into sin. Now, we did this when we went through the Sermon on the Mount version. Does your hand or your foot or your eye cause you to sin? Does it ensnare you? No, it does not. Because Jesus says in Matthew 15, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is assuming, for the sake of argument, he's saying, let's just suppose for a minute that your hand or your foot or your eye was the source and the cause of sin. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that that was true, that it caused you to stumble. Of course, we use those things to be ensnared in sin. But let's just suppose they were the source. What would the most logical course of action, if this hand was the source of my sinfulness and it repeatedly ensnared me, what would the most logical course of action be? To get out the hacksaw and start sawing it off. That would be the most logical course of action, to get it away from me, Because what? Because heaven and hell are at stake. If this is the source of sin, I better cut it off and throw it away so that I can enter into life. Because it'd be better if I entered into the kingdom of heaven with one hand rather than with two and be whole body. No, I'm not going to, I don't, I like my hand too much. I like my flesh too much. I don't want it. Uh, I'd rather go to the eternal fires of God's judgment rather than deal with my sin and the source of my sin and the source of my ensnarement. Same thing with an eye. If this eye is causing me to sin, now we use our eyes to sin. There's no doubt about it, but let's suppose this eye was the source of my sin. The best thing to do, the most logical thing for me to do would be to grab a screwdriver and pluck it out and throw it from me, because heaven and hell are at stake. It would be better for me to have one eye entering life, entering the kingdom of heaven, being Uh, enjoying God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, rather than to have both my eyes, both my hands, both my feet, and to enter in. Now, is Jesus calling for you to literally saw off your hands or your eyes? No, because sin does not dwell in your Physical hand, your physical eye, those are agents of sin that you use, but it's what your heart is using to be ensnared in sin. So, what is Jesus really calling you to do? You have got to deal as a disciple with the things that repeatedly ensnare you in your heart. You must deal with them because heaven and hell are at stake. You may profess Jesus, you may call him Lord, Lord, but if you are not dealing with the things that repeatedly ensnare, you, you must be very afraid. You've got to deal with the sin issues in your life radically. You cannot be comfortable by being repeatedly ensnared into the same sin because, friend, if you are, then that shows that you're happy to march right into the fires of God's judgment for eternity rather than enter life. Greed. Speech, pride, worldliness, pornography, addiction, anger. We could go on and on and on. If these are patterns in your life that repeatedly ensnare you, you must, I urge you to deal with them. And the the amazing reality of the gospel is that Jesus Christ went to the cross not only to pay for those things that you are ensnared by, But also to give you the Holy Spirit to indwell you so that you can successfully, by God's grace, kill those sins in your heart and live in a God-honoring way. Not perfectly, but in increasing measure. And it is a battle. It is a battle. How do we fight the battle? How is it possible to do this? by dependence, by dependence like a child on the Father, by by dependence as a child on the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given us means of grace, the means of his word, the means of prayer, but also the means of a community of disciples to say, brother or sister, I am struggling. I am continually ensnared by the sin. You got to help me because otherwise, if I continue down this road, I am headed to the fires of God's judgment. Confess your sin to fellow disciples. Get their help. Receive the counsel of mature believers to help you root out sin. This is why we do biblical counseling, because biblical counseling is just intensive discipleship to help you when you're in a pattern of being ensnared by the same sin, to get rid of it because heaven and hell are at stake. This is why we do discipleship groups and why we share prayer requests at discipleship groups and ask the question, how are you doing? What are you struggling with? Not just to air our dirty laundry, but so that we can help one another to root out persistent sin so that what? We might enter life because heaven and hell are at stake. And here's the issue about your sin. And my sin, when we are continually ensnared with it, it's not just my eternal destiny that's at stake. It is. But who else's destiny is at stake? Go back to five through seven. It's my fellow disciples. If I'm ensnared repeatedly into sin, I am showing by my example that sin is okay, God doesn't care, and now I'm ensnaring other disciples. Sin is infective. So root it out not only for the sake of your own eternal destiny, but for the sake of the fellow disciple. You must have three dispositions in the community of Jesus' disciples, in the church, in order to avoid wrath and enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to, first, lower yourself to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You need to, second, receive and do not ensnare believers to avoid woe. And you need to maim your flesh to enter into life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you have called us as your community of disciples in this local area. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to welcome one another. We want to walk holy lives, not just for ourselves and for your honor. Uh, That, of course, first and foremost, but, Lord, for the sake of each other. Lord, please expose to our hearts the sins that we are being ensnared with, and help us to deal with them. Lord, guard us from ensnaring others. And Lord, uh, help us to, when we are struggling, to call on one another, to call on you first and foremost, and then to call on one another as means of grace, to help us root out sin. Lord, because we want to enter the kingdom, we want to enjoy you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. I pray that you would do that. Lord, if there are any who are in here who are stubborn, Lord, break them, humble them, bring them to that place of being lowly and absolutely dependent, bringing them to repentance and faith in Jesus. Lord, help us to welcome them, to come alongside them, and help them. Lord, grow us, help us. May we be a community that honors and pleases you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.